You're listening to Stories from Montreal, a podcast to highlight the voices and work of Concordia University's undergraduate sociology and anthropology department. All of our guests have been featured authors in our academic journal of the same name, Stories from Montreal. I would like to begin by acknowledging that Concordia University is located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Ganyagehaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the land and waters on which we gather today. Jojage, or Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Julien is an illustrator and researcher who speaks, writes, and studies visual culture, mostly within the creative industry and usually with a critical perspective. He holds a BFA in printmaking from the European School of Visual Arts and a master's in anthropology with a focus on linguistic anthropology from the University of Montreal. Today, Julian joins me to talk about his research in Myanmar and his experience of being openly queer at home, but closeted in the field. Hey, Julian, thanks for talking with me today. Hi, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, so I did mention that you were uh, your focus was in linguistics anthropology. Could you give a quick explanation for any of the listeners who aren't really sure what that distinction means? Sure. So linguistic anthropology is like this like fourth um, aspect of like uh, Northern American anthropology, along with ethnology, biology, and archaeology. Um, what we focus on mainly in linguistic anthropology is the way language, society, and culture are kind of like mutually constitutive. And um, and so that really means that we look at the way language and like more broadly communication really as, as the core of everything like social and cultural. So the way I like to look at it is like in a, in a method kind of way is to say that like for linguistic anthropologists, the minimal unit of study is not so much like the group uh, per se, but it's really the inter interaction. So whether the interaction is really one-on-one -on -one or group to group or whatever we want to like frame it as, uh, it's really the interaction between two elements that is really interesting. Um, so yeah, I think that's one of the main characteristics that make, maybe like defines linguistic anthropology like compared to the other fields. And so what were you actually researching when you did your, your field research in, in Myanmar? So uh, it's um, like, I'm going to sound like I'm not the best one to like talk about linguistic anthropology because I actually studied uh, images, but I link my work to like this more contemporary, like current in like linguistic anthropology studies where we don't only look to, we're not only looking to language per se, but like really to communication, like I was saying. So my work was focusing on visual culture in Myanmar, Buddhist visual culture. And, uh, and so I was using mainly a linguistic anthropology framework with like all the concepts of linguistic anthropology to look at broader communicative events. So involving both language, like verbal events, but also images and the very materiality of, of those images and, and things like that. Um, and my research was really about the Buddha image and which are very like ubiquitous in Myanmar, obviously. And, um, and I was really 
questioning what was the difference between a Buddha image that is proper for like the worship and a Buddha image that you find in a market and that has not been consecrated yet. Um, and most of the literature like on this topic really looks at the consecration of the, of the Buddha image as this very crucial moment in its life uh, as an object that really defines um, his ability to be worshipped. Whereas like what I wanted to look at is this biography of it from the quarry, the marble quarry to the shrine and how maybe along the way there were maybe more semiotic events that were necessary for it to become this powerful image of Buddha that is being able to be worshipped. So, so yeah, in that way, linguistic anthropology really helped me like framing this biography of this object as this very solid, concrete object in a way that it was linked to discourse, it was linked to ideology, and it was linked to economy and materiality itself. And I think this is what's interesting about contemporary linguistic anthropology is really this ability to link to very symbolic and, uh, and abstract concepts with very material uh, and concrete objects. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really interesting. Um, that there's like two kind of, even though it's the same image, it's like two different like social functions and like it has so many more meetings to it. Mm-hmm. So Myanmar had been, you know, previously closed for a long time to outside visitors. Um, and you were there, how, what year were you in there? So I went there for two summers. Uh, so in total, like six months over the summers of 2016 and 2017. Um, and the country has like, quote-unquote, opened up um, around 2011 on those times, like, got open to tourists. I feel like I I got it, like, I went to Myanmar because of this, uh, because actually of the opening up, like, I was talking to my advisor and, and looking for a place to do my research because I had this very strong theoretical interest, but I didn't know exactly where I would be able to to do a research about like visual culture and religion uh, that could also like ties in like economic anthropology that I was really interested in. Um, And my advisor was working on like Theravada Buddhism in Sri Lanka. And it's the same branch of of Buddhism that is being practiced in Myanmar. And so there was definitely this very like exciting perspective of going to a field that has been shut down for so many years um, because of the coup. So there was definitely this kind of like weird situation where it was like, oh, wow, there's this place where there's definitely not much literature written on the, in the last like 50 years. Um, so it's kind of this challenge to, to, to kind of approach the, this field like without really knowing much, like especially on like such a specific topic of like linguistic anthropology, like at the intersection of like visual culture, um, which are like very, like recent uh, kind of development in the field in that, in that sense. So, so yeah, so that's how I ended up there. Like, cause it, it was part because it was, it had just opened up and part because like my advisor was like interested in the, in the area. And um, I already had like a bit of expertise on the, the topic. Mm-hmm. 
And so then how was how was your experience once you got to the field? Because you said you went twice, so you were there quite a yeah quite a long time. Yeah, 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 definitely. For for a masters, it was uh, I I was lucky because I started my masters in in January, so that allowed me to have two summers to to go to the field um, while I was doing my like my masters. Because usually, like you start like September and it kind of like become where you usually have like only one summer that you can actually spend in the field. So so it was definitely. Um, harder than i expected i think <laughs> between like learning like the the first the first show was like really intensive like learning the language as much as i could even though it was impossible and like the amount of time that i had to actually develop like any sorts of like ability to be uh comfortable in the language but obviously being like <laughs> studying in linguistic anthropology that was like one of the main focus if only just to understand basic concepts and how concepts are constructed and and, and conveyed um and the research is, itself was um was definitely looser than i would want it to be uh, in the sense that i i didn't really have any guidelines or any strong methodological like background to to run this research and i think this is true of like a lot of of students like doing like the first like field work during the the masters where there's only like one class of like methodology of research during the the ba but it doesn't prepare you in like to obviously to all the variety of experiences you're going to have in in different fields It, it was interesting in the sense of like i i decided to stick to like a very urban setting which was in itself very important for the for the research as like the um, this intersection between economy and visual culture was like cities were hubs for for these kind of things like big markets with like tons of statues being sold so that's what I, I went for and yeah the second summer was easier but also way more complex because that was like the summer where I did like a lot of interviews um also in the field, you end up have, you end up taking space and like uh, having, a, having a given role to like justify your presence in some spaces. So I was teaching English. I was giving some English classes. Like, can you believe it? My English, like, but uh, I was giving English classes in um in a mona- in the monastery, and that was like my gateway to to meeting like more people, especially monks and. And the students and the students became like people I was working a lot, and so so. But that ended up like taking a lot of time out of like the actual research. But that's part of the research itself, and that's something that wasn't really clear before starting the the field. I think to me that like your role in the space that you have to take uh, in order to be useful, at the very least, takes up a lot of time, and like you you have to really juggle those those moments because like also. The summer is very short to to do any any type of, of field work. So then would you say that anthropological research differs from other kind of research because the focus is so much more strongly placed on building relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think this whole aspect of of creating long-lasting 
relationships and and becoming slightly intimate with people in a way that you there's so much of the of the actual interactions are not about you extracting data and like asking questions all the time it's really about you doing very small talk and and just chatting and getting to know people and to learn about them and vice versa um so so that's really a, the bulk of the work really like the the days where i was actually doing like interviews or or really fulfilling like a like a predicted task that i had set myself on like it was like very rare at the end because most of the work was just getting to know people and getting them to like get a sense of like what i was here for too because at the beginning there's a lot of translation involved like both linguistic but also cultural and just saying like what's anthropology and what am i here for what does that mean you know like like what are all those questions i'm asking you know like there's there's way to 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 answer questions that you expect but like that people you're working with don't necessarily know or expect so like it's there's a great book uh, i think it was by um richard bowman and and, and briggs about the interview as uh like a social linguistic element that is like very deeply rooted in like a cultural setting and very situated in it. And so you can't expect to like get in the field and start asking questions without understanding how people are socialized to answer questions and how questions are perceived like linguistically and socially and all those things. So so it's also like super important to have this kind of reflexivity on like what are those linguistic like norms that we have as anthropologists and how they're being perceived on the field. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you really have to think about your your own place in that society, but also who you are as a person. Um, was that something that you had to confront in the field? Oh, for sure. I mean, obviously, like the main um, the, the main thing for me was that like as a queer person, it was very hard to like negotiate like how I was presenting myself in the field because like it's one thing to have a research topic on queerness as a researcher while being queer, but it's another to have a research that is has nothing to do with queerness and being like a queer person in the field because suddenly you you kind of end up like meeting a lot of different people and and you back to kind of like square one where like you you back to the closet but in a way that is like it's also like a cultural closet where like your queerness is not something you can easily translate um for example in Myanmar like the cons- like our conception of gender and sexuality is is really different from from what language uh, and categories allow to do in in Burmese language so the way for example like we here we can like be gay and cisgender uh or transgender and straight or like all this like configuration in Myanmar like very differently categorized and like circumscribed and uh and it's much more like blurry blurry and um there's also like very few terms to that are not derogative uh in nature for queer people so it's like all of those things makes it very hard and almost like impossible to like just easily come out like I would do it like any day here. 
And so it definitely affects like the, your relationship to field work, to the people you're working with. It makes you question a lot of like the quality and the validity of your, of your data. Uh, I think the, the crucial aspect of field work tends to be, like I was saying, like this creation of intimate bonds with people and getting to know them and they get to know you. And this trust that you're creating is like at the very basis of anything you can do afterwards. But for example, being a queer person, like a queer man on, in, a, in, in the field, what I remember finding hard was like, like a usual, very basic men bonding uh, moment uh, is often to like talk about like women experience and like like objectifying women and stuff like that and that was like like the thing that I was all that was always required of me in like homo masculine environment and it was like super hard because like suddenly of course like you you don't have uh, and you don't want to have this experience and reciprocate those this banter kind of thing. And so in, in return, that just makes you feel that you're not sharing as much as the others. And you just by omission, you kind of like, like creating like a, a wall behind, like in front of you, like between you and the people you, you're with, because uh, you can't just take part in this banter. So, so in those moments, I think it was really hard and really unexpected because that's like something that I've never considered before growing a field. Uh, how like around queerness could be like an issue beyond the fact that I was like spend like a few months like without like without really thinking like of sex or at least like because that's also the thing is like we used to talk about field work as like this thing that you expected to go on for like month and month at a time. And for the PhD, like 15, 18 months. And everyone is willing to send you there like, like happily, but like without an ever word of like, what are you supposed to do with your sexual desires if you have any? And, and, and that's super problematic because it's like, like a, a huge part of like a lot of people's life. And, like, and, and because sexuality is like also very cultural and, and very like linguistic and like, it's too bad that we don't talk about it as, as much and that we don't address those, those issues with people that, that we send in the field uh, beforehand. Yeah, I know that I wasn't doing a master's or anything, but even in my you know uh, anthropology methodology courses, when we talked about positionality and talked about field work, the you know queerness, sexuality as the as an aspect that can affect your research instead of like you said being like the subject was never ever mentioned like gender age race sometimes was mentioned but never ever that and that's pretty wild now that you think about it yeah no for sure and and i feel like we we talk about the things in a way that is either to protect the people we're working with uh, when it comes to like being reflexive around like our own like racial background and like how it's going to be perceived and like for like all the reasons like when you're an anthropologist in um, in a post-colonial setting or all those things are super important to be mindful of. Um, or we talk about those things for the safety of the of the anthropologist, like for the same reason about like gender or race or you know like you don't want to do this field work or like maybe like. You have to think about those things in order to stay safe. 
but for queerness i think it's like it's it's another like kind of thing because like i was as i was saying i feel like for me the the biggest uh thing about it was really considering my excess and my my relationship with people and and the way i was perceived and like the the intimacy like the bonds i was able to create the way i was perceived as genuine or not which is very important when you when you're in this sort of relationship um i think those things are affected in a very big way but also like very hard to to pin down and like to talk about because we yeah we we expect also like there's this expectation of like any anthropologist to have this ability to create bonds like very easily with people and just like that's our job that's what we do blah blah but uh but yeah that's a major caveat yeah i think it's also like ironic might be like i digress but the fact that anthropologists are supposed to be able to create these bonds so quickly when i've talked to a lot of people who studied anthropology a lot of their like initial reasoning was because it was like a way for them to kind of like understand the world because they like maybe felt like a bit like an outsider. And I think that's kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Like same thing. I mean, like I went to anthropology because I wanted a way for to like distantiate myself like from from things like from like social things and to understand them in a very cold way. And then I got to anthropology and I was like, oh no, I have to be a people person now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't tell you that. <laughs> No, <laughs> for sure. So I'm just like going back to the closet for that purpose is like, it's really like, it, it's just really hard. And like, and, and I don't know if it's like very sustainable uh, either. Like I know of like some researchers who are like, who are queers, but like that the field work doesn't know about it. But to me, that's crazy. I mean, like, how, like, I don't know how that's sustainable to like spend so many years uh, working with people and and creating all those relationships based on like this massive omission of of who you are. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of people do that in their in their everyday life as well. So yeah, it's it's that's a tricky one, mm-hmm. but. I wonder, do you have any, like, insight as to why you think that queerness isn't discussed in the classroom? Like, when we're learning, like, the foundational aspects of, of research? Mm-hmm. I think it's because, for so many reasons, like, obviously because it escapes, like, any sorts of definitions of the time. Like, it's super hard for, like, a, an anthropologist, like, who any professor will give, like, the methodology you know, qualitative methodology class uh, and who is not well acquainted with like queerness and like queer issues and experiences and stuff will have like the biggest trouble integrating it seamlessly in a curriculum, I feel, and like addressing it. Uh, I think also there's a big, how to say that, like I feel like there's a big taboo maybe around sexuality in general in anthropology. Like we love to to talk about like other people's sexuality it was part of like so much of like uh, research with like Malinowski and like Margaret Mead and like all those people. But like we, when it comes to like talking about like our own sexuality, like no one really does it. Like only if it's like also, it happens to be like also like the, the research topic, like we were saying earlier. Like if, 
of course, if you research queerness, like you got to talk about your own queerness and how it gave you access to certain fields, but you you rarely hear people talking about how queerness like preventing them from going to certain places or certain fields. Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely a bit of like awkwardness around those topics, and I'm thinking of this like um, this collection of essay by. Uh, Done, edited by Don Carlick and Margaret Wilson. And I think it's, it was called like, uh, like I think taboo sex and like erotic subjectivities in the field work, in anthropology field work, something like that. And it's great because it's like this collection of essays that address this very topic of sexuality and queerness in the field. And what's very interesting is that like in the introduction, um, the editors write that like, when it came the time to reach out to researchers and to like call out for the community to like call for papers, um, at best, like they had like very few answers from specific, like especially from like straight men, and at worst they had like backlash, um, and that ended up being reflected in the the composition of the book, where like most of the texts are written by uh, like straight and queer women. Uh, and queer men, and only I think one straight man ac accepted to to write anything on the topic. Because I mean, those those things are super touchy. I mean, like all those like trade white men that we've sent on like in exotic places, and that ended up like doing awful things, like based on like colonial like desires. It's just it it is also ingraining like the history of our of our discipline. Um, and I think it's one thing to like deconstruct like colonialism and like Cicerino discipline from like this very like epistemological like point of view. But when it comes to like deconstruct it in our own bodies and in our own desires, uh, I think it's we have a long way to go still. Yeah. On that note of academia, um, what was actually your experience? Like, were you able to address this? like these experiences that you had like during the preparatory I guess not preparatory because then it was only when you got there that you realized it would be such a big uh, factor but maybe the subsequent period of your research um not really I mean I know that I like even the first year coming back from the field work like I I, I don't even think I've felt it as a as an issue or even like named it at that point I think it's only the year after um after my second field work that I started to really reflect on that. And, and I mean, like, it was done, like, and, but it, yeah, I started to reflect on it because I was picturing myself maybe doing a PhD after that. And, and the perspective of, like, going back to Myanmar and studying something, again, unrelated to queerness, became, like, super daunting to me. And, and I couldn't really figure out why until I realized that that was because of that, that was like, because of the perspective of like going back to the closet for a field work that once you do a field work for your PhD, most likely become the field work you attach to for the rest of your career too. So, so yeah, I started to feel this like malaise kind of thing uh, around it. And, um, and I tried to talk about it with like one professor, um, but I could, didn't go anywhere. I mean, like I, I, I've mentioned that that thing that like I felt a bit awkward, like like be queer and like doing this field work and like 
doing it and that it was bugging me. But I didn't really feel like supported or like empathized with it, like with this issue. Like it was very like, oh yeah, I mean like you gotta <laughs> you gotta make those choices, you know, like it's really up to you. But like yeah, I think it was a missed chance to to really talk about it, to really have a conversation about that. Cause because yeah, if you like when you're when you hold discipline is so strongly uh based in this massive thing like of the field work uh and spending time in place and everything like you can't really avoid to talk about those things like we have to integrate it somehow yeah yeah so clearly focusing solely on reflexivity is what we're kind of doing contemporarily in anthropology isn't enough are there other ways to to circumvent this this history of like being super objective and like these overpower imbalances um, from colonialism um, in in anthropology and its fieldwork. I mean, I hope so. Uh, I know there's like so. Yeah, there's also like this whole like movement that say that like you just you just can't like anthropology is a colonial like enterprise and like and you can't like. Uh, I don't know what's the expression in English, but like you can't like destroy the house of the master with the tools of the master kind of thing. Um, I feel like it's funny because from coming from linguistic anthropology, and as I was saying, it's like this very the basis of what we look at is interaction. I think it makes it easier to to think in a intersubjective way, um, and by that I mean like I think it's the next steps. Like we can't just be reflexive that's not enough because reflexivity is just like us looking at ourselves um but that's that's not really i mean that's that's the beginning of being useful but at the end of the day we're working with other people and we're interacting with other people that's what we do in anthropology and i think reflexivity is just not enough and you have to find ways to to integrate like the way people perceive you and the way people think of you and are going to trust you or not and like for what reason and in your research and like really be aware of those things and that is just not you coming to a place and like dealing with other experiences like it's you interacting with people who also have experience and who are experiencing you dropping up like in their world and 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 I think yeah if we if we had this vision of like the interaction as a as a unit of 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 experience of analysis rather than just one individual talking to other individuals or one group talking to another group um i think it would be easier to develop those tools to 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 gain like greater awareness and like to be more inclusive and to yeah, to think about those things before they happen to you basically mm -hmm. starting the conversations before it's you're already like in it mm -hmm. well on the note of like representations and whatnot um on your website you you wrote on in your bio that you like to make up simple and thoughtful images that quietly clear up representations so i was wondering do you think that the fact that you were unable to properly represent yourself in the field by not being out um impacted your desire to to contribute to clear representations in other aspects of your life? Mm -hmm. I mean, probably, yeah. Um, I think queerness is like such this 
such an interesting thing as is both very political and very intimate. And I think the reasons why we like as researchers or like as creatives, artists or whatever, uh, tackle this topic in any way is for both sides kind of. It's like as much for intimate reason and like personal experiences than it is for like like political reasons. Because also I think being queer is being like fundamentally in solidarity to a broader community. And I think this is what it means um, yeah, the very core of queerness, I think, is like community. And because for so many queer kids, like community was lacking for so long. So I, I think it's important to like think of queerness in that way. And now that I'm in like a, an artist, like an illustrator, what I see myself doing is that I, I end up like having the, the responsibility of like encoding representations where like when I was a researcher, I was trying to decode like to decode like cultural codes um now what i'm doing is like i'm creating those cultural objects that and then i'm producing them at like large scale because like like working for like magazines and brands and stuff like that your work is going to be like distributed everywhere um so I, i definitely like to take the this opportunity to like i say like quietly queering up representation in the sense that I like it to to be just like this natural way of of doing things that is it becomes the norm I think that's what I'm trying to do with my work is like creating the new norm of like representation and often like yeah I try to decenter straightness and like cisgenderness like as a like as the norm obviously and then like in my work I remember like one of my first gigs in editorial illustration was like this piece for the New York Times about um, couples fighting after having a baby. And um, and it was super interesting because like my characters are usually like super non-gendered, like they're really just people. And that definitely comes from like my anthropology background, I feel like they're just like I'm interested in showing characters for what they do and how they interact more than like very like specific criterias like uh, individual criterias and I remember the article being explicit about the fact that it was straight couples who were fighting after having babies like queer couple like after the arrival of a baby like was would chill because like they didn't have the pressure the, the social pressure of like normal like social norms like around the roles of like women and men like you know couple and all those things so so it was way easier for queer couples to like negotiate like the separation of tasks and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was fun because like at that point, like I had to like force myself to draw very gendered people to really show like all those little straight couples in my picture. Um, and whereas like often I'm being asked by clients to like gender more the 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 characters in my drawing. And I, I often have to like negotiate that and to be, it's not useful. Like, illustration is being is about being intentional in what you do because you create from scratch like images so like you can be very intentional about like everything you decide to to put on the page or not and uh and i always like find myself telling it's like this if the story doesn't call for uh men and women if like the fact that those people like men and women there's just no point in showing like those two basic genders like it's just it's useless 
you're just doing it because you want to reproduce a norm but like my work is about like creating a norm so so yeah you, you constantly have to negotiate that and to like make it a, a thing but i think it's important work and it's like and it's easy and it's fun and and it's really rewarding I mean, yeah, to me, gendering something makes it way less relatable to the masses than to have a non-gendered aspect and anyone can see themselves in it. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, on that note, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. It went so quickly, but uh, but thanks again for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Like, it was it was really great talking about, about the things that really brought back, like, so many, like, memories, and it definitely makes me think about anthropology and fieldwork and representation uh, in, in a different way. And, and I hope that like, we'll get to talk more as like academics and all the things like about the things and to really integrate them. Cause like, we have this like little problem. Like I think that one of our big problems is that we tend to always talk about the anthropology of something, the anthropology of something. We objectify everything as a topic of research, but we often forget that like all those things are also embodied in, in ourselves and, and that we're, we convey like our bodies are like also communicative in so many ways and, and this impacts the work we do. Stories for Montreal was produced with support from the Concordia Student Union the Sociology and Anthropology Student Union, and CGLO Radio Station. It was hosted and edited by me, Marie Figueroa. Our sound design is by Malta Leander, and artwork by Ali Brown. You can catch our show on the CGLO Airways at cglo.com or on their channel 1690 every Wednesday at 4 p.m. You can also listen to us anywhere you like to stream podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.